When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We hear... We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, as he directed, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to play. Later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be af- don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come, come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent the word to all the surrounding countries. People brought their sick to him and begged him, and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. That was very well done, wasn't it? Well done, Jessica. Even got the Gennesaret bit, which uh, I've seen many adults stumble on before, so uh, very well done. Uh, great passage. I'm delighted to be uh, preaching uh, to you on it today. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's James Lewis. I'm one of the senior assistant ministers here. Um, so uh, please keep Matthew 14 open, uh, and let me pray as we ask God's help uh, to understand. Father God, we thank you so much for the freedom and openness we meet in this uh, comfortable building. Um, We think of uh, parts around the world where Christians uh, are unable to meet openly and safely because of persecution. Or even parts of Australia where um, poverty and addiction uh, make lives very difficult and broken. And just being in a church building is very hard or just a great uh, great win for those families. And so we ask uh, 
that this time together and we enjoy so much freedom and safety here that we would not waste the opportunity you've given us. But by your spirit in your word, uh, you would soften and change uh, our hearts, transform us to love and serve Jesus in all things. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series in Matthew, God with us. And, and I want to start uh, with a little bit of controversy uh, this morning. You ready? Cats versus dogs. Where do you land? Put up your hand if you're a cat person. Dog person? Yeah, it's always the way, isn't it? I, I, I mean, we would have thought perhaps that the big divides in our culture were things like uh, Christian versus state school, uh, public versus private, labor versus liberal, Mac versus PC, the Parramatta Eels versus basically everyone else, right? <laughs> but, but, then, but then there's this divide, cats versus dogs. And some of you might be really kind and gentle-hearted and you might say, well, why the division, James? Why can't we just love all of God's creatures? Because there's just something about cats, right? The way that they look at you, it's like they're plotting, plotting your downfall or something, you know, it, is it just me? <laughs> There's a joke that says, uh, dogs have masters, cats have staff. So uh, a dog looks at you and says, wow, you, you provide for me, you protect me, you love me, you care for me. You must be like God. A, a cat looks at you and says, wow, you provide for me, you protect me, you feed me, you love me. I must be God. And a dog just wants to be with you, right? They just want to be with you. Like, wherever you are, like, are you just going into this room for like 10 seconds? No, I can do that. And I'll come with you. Are you just watching TV for like an hour? Yeah, I'll just sit and do that. They just want to be with you, near you. A cat comes and goes as it pleases and really just turns up for food and a pat or a scratch or something. Dogs have masters. Cats have staff. And this, I reckon, totally translates into how we relate to Jesus. Um, Some of us are are like cats. We look at Jesus and we say, Wow, you you love me, you protect me, you watch over me, you save me. Oh, you must work for me. And some of us are like dogs. We look at Jesus and we say, Wow, you love me, you protect me, you watch over me, you save me. You must be my king. Uh, Again, um, some of us kind of come and go. We're like cats. We come and go with Jesus. We, we, We just kind of take him or leave him. But when we want something, when we need something, then we cry out to him. And some of us are like dogs. We just want to be with Jesus. Wherever, whenever, whatever. We, we don't mind. We, we just want to be with Jesus. And, and, and some of us are kind of in the middle, aren't we? Like we know that we need Jesus, but we're prone to wander prone to leave the God that we love. And so today I want us to see really two, just two big things out of Matthew 14. The first is that King Jesus is compassionate and generous. And the second big thing is that King Jesus is our mighty rescuer. And I want you to leave this building this morning knowing that only this Jesus can be there for you. Only this Jesus can sustain you and save you. Okay, you ready? King Jesus, compassionate and generous. Now, before uh, we meet King Jesus, we, we need to kind of get to know this other king that's on the scene, King Herod. So have a look at Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2 with me. 
It says there, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now he seems really confused about Jesus, doesn't he? Not really sure. It's what you get when you combine superstition with a troubled conscience. Uh, sometimes the people say, oh, this house is cursed because of something I did in the past. Or, I didn't pray right, so I didn't get blessed by God. It's what you get when you have superstition with a troubled conscience. And, and that's Herod here. He's superstitious with a troubled conscience. He looks at Jesus' miracles and he thinks, oh, that means that, King, uh, that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. He's superstitious with a troubled conscience. So, what does he have a troubled conscience for? Well, we need to keep reading verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now, we saw this just mentioned very briefly a few weeks ago in Matthew 11. Uh, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So it was just mentioned in passing by Matthew. Now we get the full story. And I need to warn you as we read on, um, this is not a nice story. Uh, it's not a they lived happily ever after kind of story. Um, it, it, it's, it's more like a Quentin Tarantino movie than a Disney movie, if you like. Um, it's not uh, a 6pm on Saturday Pixar family movie. Uh, it's a SBS 9.30 kind of movie uh, now. Okay, just warning you. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John the Baptist, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. That's a seedy, evil scene, isn't it? A bunch of adults sitting around, stuffing their faces, getting drunk, while the teenage daughter of Herod, teenage stepdaughter of Herod, dances for them. And, and then they finish the night. They kind of climax and finish off the night by having John the Baptist's head brought in on a plate. This is King Herod, a weak, arrogant, violent man. This is King Herod's court where an innocent, righteous man is executed because, well, the wine was flowing, a teenage girl could dance, her mother took the opportunity to get revenge, and Herod was just too weak to do anything about it. This is life under King Herod. It is awful, isn't it? But you know, we really shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because this is what human power does. Human power corrupts. I mean, you look around the world, look at places like Zimbabwe, where Robert Mugabe has basically single-handedly ruined that country. It used to be the breadbasket of Africa, is now the basket case of Africa. I was reading during the week that Mugabe's personal fortune is estimated to be something like $1 billion. He celebrated his 91st birthday um, uh, just recently, and the birthday party alone, just the birthday party, cost a million dollars. And this is while 72% of Zimbabweans live in poverty, and the life expectancy is something like 58 years. This is why we love 
democracy, isn't it? Why we love free speech and royal commissions and social media and WikiLeaks. We need to restrain human power. It can't be trusted. And so maybe for you, it was a parent or a teacher or a boss or a church leader who abused power and bullied and manipulated you. This is human power. This is what King Herod is like. So now, come and meet King Jesus. We saw it before in verses 13 to 21. Uh, Jesus was drawn from the crowds to pray with his Father in heaven, and yet the crowds uh, still come and find him. And, and, and so picture it, Jesus is there alone praying, uh, and the crowds uh, come and are drawn to him. And I want you to imagine the crowd. Uh, there's people who are blind. Maybe they're being led along by friends and, and family, or maybe they're on their own and they're kind of groping and stumbling their way forward. And there's people with different kinds of skin diseases, maybe something like leprosy, and maybe the other people in the crowd are kind of giving them a wide berth, trying to avoid them. And then there's those who are paralysed, being carried on mats by friends and family, and on and on they come to Jesus seeking help. And how does Jesus respond to these crowds? Is he annoyed that his time has been interrupted? Is he irritated, frustrated? Now have a look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had what, church? Call it out. Compassion on them. Yeah, he had compassion on them. It's very similar to what we saw in chapter uh, 9 a few weeks ago. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. So, so picture it again, hour after hour, the crowds come to Jesus, he speaks with them, he touches them, he heals them, and then as evening approaches, they are hungry. And so Jesus feeds them this amazing miracle. I remember when I was in year 12 and I was exploring Jesus for the first time, and I remember reading this scene, and I said to one of the leaders, what does this mean, this feeding? What does it Symbolize like what? What's the poetry? So I was doing three in English in Year Twelve, so that's the kind of words you use, right? Metaphors and poetry and so on. And, and I thought it was very intelligent. Um, and, and, and he said it doesn't symbolize anything. It's not poetry. Jesus actually fed the crowds. And I thought, wow, I think there's a little more to this Jesus than I thought. See what happens here is Jesus feeds the crowd. This is not a, a lesson in how it's fun to share or how a little generosity can go a long way. It wasn't a miracle of spiritual satisfaction, but physical feeding. It wasn't that the crowds felt full, they were full. Now, you might know this story really well, but have a look closely with me. Verse 19. How many uh, loaves and how many fish did they have? How many loaves? How many fish? Right, Jesus takes that and he feeds a crowd. He gives a feast to a crowd of how many? Verse 21. 5,000 men besides women and children. So that's something like ten to 15,000 people. Jesus feeds them. That's massive. And then after that meal, how many basketfuls of leftovers did they pick up? Verse 20. 12, that's right. So they have more leftovers than when they started. 
right? There are more leftovers than when they started. This is an amazing miracle. It is Jesus, the good shepherd, providing for his people. Just like God had done 1,500 years before when his people wandered through the desert. Uh, it's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, but Nehemiah 9 is a summary of uh, the Old Testament up to that point as Israel looks back on their story with God. And verse 15 says, In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. God fed his people in the wilderness, and then 1,500 years later, Jesus fed the crowds. This couldn't be more different to Herod, could it? Herod is a a drunk up in a palace, uh, selfish, arrogant, violent, sitting away from the crowds up in his cosy palace, and then his compassionate, generous Jesus out among the crowds, healing, feeding, providing. Church, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is generous when life is great? Do you believe that Jesus is enough when life is awful? It's easy to say, isn't it? Harder to live. Our next scene takes us deeper into our hearts, takes us deeper into our walk with Jesus as we look at Jesus, our mighty rescuer. Now, we read this before, and I wonder what your reaction was to Peter walking on the water. Um, my reaction when I first read it was kind of fascination and being a little bit unsettled as well. Like fascination because walking on water sounds really, really cool. Like, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> and, and then unsettling because as soon as Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and sees the wind and the waves, he sinks. That's troubling. So what do we do with this? Well, we could get it all wrong, couldn't we? We could say something like, as long as you fix your eyes on Jesus, you will have power and peace to walk across the storms of your life. could say that. Or we could kind of do a Joel Osteen thing and say, well, the reason Jesus had power to walk across the storms was because, well, he knew who he was. He said, it is I, I, I am. He knew who he was. So he had power in his life to, to walk across the storms of life. And Joel Osteen's actually written a book along that line called The Power of I Am. And the publishers uh, put this as a kind of promotion. I am, what follows these two words will determine the course of your life. When you speak about yourself, what do you say? The direction you follow in life begins with these two simple words. If you have a powerful I am, you will carry yourself with a quiet confidence. The power of I am will transform your self-image, help you invite the right things into your life, and redirect your life's course onto the road of confidence, assurance, and success. There you go. If you have a powerful I am, if you really know who you are, then you'll be set free to be all that you can be. The problem with all that is the Bible. (laughs) Because God speaks to us in the real world, right? God speaks to us in the real world, not in the fantasy land of Christian pop psychology. The, the real world where good, godly men and women get cancer and lose everything. The, the real world where God defines who you are, not you. The real world where God's plans for you are far better than anything you could ever imagine for yourself. So then we could go in the opposite direction with this. We could just dismiss the disciples. Fancy thinking Jesus was a ghost. How silly. 
we could write off Peter as another example of him just being foolhardy. You know, he steps out on the water and he says to the other disciples, I got this. And then as he sinks, he says, I, I don't got this. So what do we take away from it then? It's just try not to be reckless in your faith. And yet there is something about Peter's experience here, right? Hebrews 12 points us in that direction. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See there, twice we get an encouragement to fix our eyes, to focus on Jesus as we walk with him, as we persevere in this life. So, so there is something about Peter's experience here, isn't there? And I think it's that it helps us wrestle with our own walk with Jesus. In particular, how fear and faith shape our walk with Jesus. So, so let's take a closer look. Let's step into the disciples' shoes for a minute. Um, you've heard the old phrase that says, before you criticise someone, walk a mile in their shoes, because then you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. You heard, heard that one? Let's walk in their shoes, in their sandals. Let's step into the boat for a moment. I want you to picture it. You've had a long day of ministry with Jesus. And sure, seeing him feed and heal the crowds was amazing. But now you're exhausted. And as night falls, you're in a fishing boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. And there's something about the way the wind comes down through the mountains that means that storms can whip up on the sea very quickly, quite violent storms. And that's what happened this night as the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're in a storm. And imagine you're, you're in the storm uh, and the waves are huge and you're not in a kind of powerful speedboat just kind of slicing through the waves. You're not in a sleek, long yacht. You're in a little fishing boat. And so probably all night you're tacking back and forth into the storm. And then as dawn nears, you see this figure coming across the waves towards you. And so, of course, you say, who, what is that? And you are afraid. But in the very next moment, you hear the voice of your master. Verse 27, he says, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus doesn't mock the disciples for their fear. He doesn't enjoy his power over them or his ability to terrify them. No, he comforts. And notice Jesus didn't need to say, it's me, Jesus. But he simply speaks and they know his voice. His voice alone is enough to calm them. It reminds me of uh, John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. My sheep know my voice. And so Peter's response is just right, isn't it? Because he says, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water. He just wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't say, look, could you calm the storm and just settle everything down and we'll sail to the sea shore ourselves. No, he just wants to be with Jesus. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, welcomes him. He just says, come. 
Peter walks out on the water, but verse 30, as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks. But verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? This is so much like our walk with Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the Lord of creation. The reason that he can walk across the storm is because he made the wind and the waves. And he is so awesome that he could terrify us with a word or a look. I don't care how big and strong you are or how courageous you think you are. If Jesus wanted to, he could turn each of us into a blubbering mess. But that's not what Jesus does. He speaks comfort into our lives. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he invites us to come to him. No conditions, no performance targets, no hurdles. Just come as you are with your brokenness and your sin and you are welcome. But we stumble like the disciples. Our fears and doubts take over. So church, what what are you afraid of? Notice I said, what are you afraid of? Not are you afraid? We are all afraid. Because let's not do the fake church thing where we pretend our lives are all okay let's be real put up your hand if you have fears about your life put up your hand if you're afraid to put up your hand it's alright it's, we're, it's, we're Anglican I know and we're not seeing so it's alright to put your hands up Okay. fear of cancer fear of losing your job fear of failure Fear of criticism, fear of being alone, fear of the future, fear of depression and anxiety, fear of the bully at school or at work, fear that your secret addictions will be exposed and will destroy you, fear that your children will never really flourish or your grandchildren, fear that for all your praying and your Bible reading and your churching, your faith just won't be strong enough. Let's be real about this. Let's acknowledge we have fears. And then that first fear, that fear that we were alone, that no one else, like everyone else is is courageous and strong and I'm the only one who's afraid, that fear is gone. How many of us, our fears rise up because we doubt the goodness of Jesus? We doubt that he's strong enough and he's good enough to look after us. And and so we're like the disciples. There's moments when Jesus is so clear and we believe so strongly. It's just so clear and simple. And then there are moments when we are so full of fear and doubt. But Jesus doesn't condemn us. Yes, he's going to challenge us. Yes, he's going to press on our hearts. James, why do you doubt Church, why do you doubt? But just like Peter, he says that, he presses on us in the same moment that he's reaching out to lift us up and strengthen us and give us courage to go on. And so we need to be each day where the disciples finish in this passage. Verse 32, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's where we need to be each day, on our knees worshipping Jesus as the Lord of creation and the Son of God. Because you can treat Jesus like a cat treats its owner, as a gap filler, 
as a footnote, as an add-on, as a bench warmer. But friends, Jesus isn't an add-on to a life that's already worked out. He is the Lord of creation and the Son of God. And you know what? If you treat Jesus like a cat treats its owner, that Jesus will not be able to help you when grief and sickness drive a semi-trailer through your hopes and dreams. That Jesus will not be able to comfort you and sustain you when you feel so alone and so empty. That Jesus will not be able to save you from your sin and brokenness. But if you know the real Jesus, the Jesus who is Lord of creation and the Son of God, this Jesus will be there for you. This Jesus will comfort and sustain you. This Jesus says to you this morning, Come, and you are welcome. Knock, and the door will be open. Cry out, and I'll save you.